0: All right, please take your Bibles and you can uh, have them if you want in Hebrews 2. Once again, we are in a bit of a topical series this evening, uh, part two of a three-part sermon series about signs and wonders. We are talking about Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. In our context, the verse tells us that God used various signs, wonders, and miracles as a means of validating the superiority of the person. and the message of the Son above that of the angels and the prophets, and by proxy of our study, we recognize that the angels and the prophets is actually the law and the prophets, right? And so God has exalted his Son and the message of his Son above the law and the prophets uh, so that we have a more sure word of prophecy, as Peter would say, and so that we ought to, as Hebrews is calling us unto, take the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. So God has done this not just by sending his son and his son delivering the message and not just by delivering this message and validating it through the many witnesses of God's uh, uh, working here in the world, but then God has also chosen to do this through signs and wonders in the lives of those who proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. Now, last time, we were concerned specifically with the Old Testament. In part one, we focused in on the Old Testament and considered together the nature of the Old Testament definition, as it were, of signs and wonders. Now, in part two, we step into the New Testament proper and begin to understand how these things relate to us. And first, this evening, I want to establish the fact that the functional purpose of signs and wonders in Jesus' day and in the day of, of the book of Acts and into the early church is the same, was the same as the functional purpose throughout the Old Testament, that signs and wonders were intended to validate the working of God at a particular time for a particular reason, and thus validate the authority of the messenger or the messengers of the word of God in the ears of the hearers. Then we'll talk about the passages that would lend themselves to us seeing sign gifts as an operational element of the church. My wife was telling me a little while ago, she doesn't like when I do this, when I argue the other side and I argue it thoroughly, because then she starts to say, oh, she'd never really thought about it before. Now she says, wow, they do have a point. She doesn't like that. And I'm actually going to kind of leave you with that this evening, because next week is when I'm going to bring the rest to bear. So I'm going to leave you um, with the, the argument as to why it is that many people do believe in signs and wonders, and uh, and maybe it's not all the arguments. I don't keep up on all of them, but I'm going to leave you with a biblical argument for it, and then I'm going to leave you with a really bad counter-argument that we we are wont to make in our circles, and then next week I'll give you all the good stuff. So that's what I intend to do in part three next week. So we begin with an understanding that when Jesus was born into the nation of Israel, he was born into an Old Testament economy. Now, the Old Testament and the New Testament are broken up between Malachi and Matthew, but we do understand that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are tracing, and we can say John 2, although John's a little bit different, but, but the Gospels are tracing an Old Testament economy until really the day of Pentecost. We, we can debate about that a little bit. We could say the cross, we could say the resurrection, we could say the day of Pentecost. Uh, let's not split the church over that. But we, we do recognize that the Old Testament economy, Old Testament Israel, the covenants of God, the law, all of these things, the practicing of legal ceremonies, the the, the, the nation being bound to these legal expectations, Plenty had changed in the world around the nation of Israel and even in their own culture. Plenty had happened, plenty had changed. Those of you that have uh, heard my intertestamental period teaching, you know that a great deal changed within the 450 years between Malachi and Matthew. But all of the expectations of the law and this covenant that God had put in place remained wholly in effect in the nation of Israel and Israel was still God's chosen people, still functionally uh, doing God's commissioned purpose through the law. Uh, all of that was still happening. All of that was still in place. And Jesus came into the world with a message. He did, not, not right away. Right, He had to grow first. But you get what I'm saying. He came into the world with a message. I am the Son of God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in typical prophetic fashion, Jesus proved these things with Signs and wonders. Remember, that's what we saw last week. What we saw last week is God would have a message, and that message would go forth. And in order to validate the truth of that message, God would use signs and wonders. But remember from Deuteronomy 13, where we saw God warn that if a person comes and does signs and wonders, but his message is contrary to a message that has already been established in the Word, that God elevated his Word above the signs and wonders, that you were to reject the man that did the signs and wonders in deference to what God had already established in his Word. And so he elevated his Word above the signs and wonders. But then he used signs and wonders to establish the authority of the prophet in those times when the prophet was saying, Thus saith the Lord. And so as we step into the New Testament, as we step into Jesus' ministry, we recognize, and we, we could talk about John the Baptist who did not come with signs and wonders, by the way. But we can, and, and we'll see that in just a little bit, but we can recognize that Jesus came in the vein of that messianic message where he was going to identify with and validate his message through his works, through his wonders, And we come to a unique controversy in John chapter 10 where Jesus is speaking to the Jews. We would generally understand it to be the leaders of the Jews, maybe the Pharisees, Sadducees. But the Bible says in John 10 verse 31, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not, but if I do... Though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. So, this passage is a wonderful encapsulation of the nature of Jesus' work and his message and how those two interplayed with one another. He came with a message and he came with works that validated the message. Notice that God is using signs and wonders through Jesus the same way he used signs and wonders through everyone else. Jesus is the very Son of God, but Jesus is using signs and wonders. He may not use the same signs and wonders, right? that's fine, but he is using them in the same way that, every, that God has always used signs and wonders to validate a message, to validate the authority that it is God's message in the mouth of the messenger for a particular time to a particular people to convince them of this message. Remember how we looked last time about some of those latter prophets what we call the minor prophets. We don't see all that many signs and wonders in the latter prophets because so much of their message was not toward that day, but toward another day. So they're writing of signs and wonders that will come, like Joel, right? Joel chapter 2, our, our prototypical passage. But they're not doing signs and wonders because the people of that day don't need signs and wonders because the prophecies aren't for them that day. These prophets did not just have power to willy-nilly do signs and wonders, do what they wanted, when they wanted, for whatever reason they wanted. They had a purpose. There was something that God was doing through them. So he came with a message and he came with works. When Jesus asked for what good work they were going to stone him, more or less they appealed to Deuteronomy 13, as we considered last time. They said, not for the works. We're not stoning you for the works. We're stoning you Because even though you've done the works, your message is blasphemy. So they're invoking that Deuteronomy 13 idea that you're doing the works, but you're you're also blaspheming God. Therefore, we are holding God's word above the signs and wonders. Okay? But then Jesus proved his message to be aligned with Old Testament scripture by quoting the Psalms. Saying, look, in the Psalms it says, ye are gods. If that was written to them, then what's wrong with what I'm saying? It's perfectly in line with the Old Testament scriptures. My message is not outside of Old Testament scripture. And so he, he broke down their argument that he was blaspheming to break down their capacity to invoke Deuteronomy 13 against him. And so he approved this message to align with the Old Testament scriptures and then again appealed and he said this, if you won't believe my words, even though they're consistent with God's previous revelations, at least believe my works, my miracles, as a proof of divine authority of my message. And then he went beyond Jordan, and the people acknowledged that though John had done no works, no miracles, yet John said that this was the, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And what John said about this man was true, showing just how important Signs and wonders were to the Jewish sense of divine prophetic authority. They said even though, as if, as if this somewhat lessens John's ministry, even though John didn't do those signs and wonders, what he said came to pass. So John has proved his ministry by, by, what him, by what he said coming to pass. And Jesus is proving his ministry through the works. So the works prove Jesus. John proves Jesus. Jesus is who he says he is. And many believed on him there. One more passage to help us understand this. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says, And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him? that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could, notice this, verse 5, and he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Here we find an instance where Jesus came and he began to teach. And the people were so hard to his identity as Messiah because they had grown up with him or he had grown up around them at least. And the the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. They had no respect for his position because they knew him as a person, right? This personal touch. It was not that Jesus had to prove himself or that he had not proven himself, but rather they were not interested in him proving himself, they had already made up their mind. And because of this, the Bible says, he could do no great mighty works there. They rejected him before doing the works. And since the works would not accomplish the purpose, since there was no work that would validate in their minds and hearts, The working of God and the message of God, he was restrained from doing any mighty works there because those works would not have accomplished the purpose unto which God does signs and wonders. There was no reason for Jesus to do the works because they had already made up their minds that they were going to harden their hearts to him. Now, the list could go on as we could talk about all of the different examples of Jesus using signs and wonders. We could talk about Jesus' rebuke of the cities of Galilee in Matthew chapter 11, saying that if the works that had been done in them had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, then those cities would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. We could talk about the time in Luke 7 when the disciples of John, John who was in prison at the time, came having been sent by John to ask if Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And Jesus' response was this in Luke 7. Go tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor to the poor the gospel is preached. Jesus invoking signs and wonders as the proof that validates his message and his identity. His works were a sign of authority and validity. All of this to show us, my point here, is for you to understand that the way God used signs and wonders in, 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 in Jesus' day were the same as how he used signs and wonders before Jesus in what we would call the Old Testament. All of this is Old Testament economy, but in that, in, in that frame of reference. And so with that, I hope I have substantiated this idea that the same purpose was being fulfilled through signs and wonders in Jesus' day as as previously. And this was the context within which the Jewish people in particular understood signs and wonders. Now let's consider the Bible, how the Bible relates to signs and wonders in the church. We know that a lot changed. When Jesus was uh, crucified, he was buried, he rose again, He taught his disciples for 40 days. He ascended into heaven. They waited, and then the Holy Spirit fell on them at Pentecost. We know that a great deal changed uh, from that point on. But as we walk through these various instances, this is going to help us understand why any number of Christians see within the Scriptures the authority and the function of signs and wonders. And it is little wonder, for we do see plenty of precedent— for signs and wonders. First, the teachings of Jesus. Second, the example of the early church. And third, even the teaching in the epistles, right? We see all of this. We see Jesus set, set an example of signs and wonders. We see the apostles do signs and wonders. And we see New Testament teaching about signs and wonders. So, what do we do with it? Well, let's walk through it together. Jesus said this in John 14, verses 11 through 14. Jesus said, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very work's sake, right? Either believe me or believe my works. Same thing that he said before, John 10. Mm -hmm. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. Because I go unto my Father, and whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So here in John 14, we find Jesus exhort his disciples that if any have seen him, they have seen the Father, that the works which he does are the works of the Father, so that when they see Jesus do these mighty works, they are actually seeing the Father doing his work through Jesus. And that's what signs and wonders have always been. It's always been God doing his work through his prophets, through his apostles, through his, his followers, through those who are his in order to validate God's authority through and and God's message. Jesus appeals to the same standard regarding the works as any Jewish prophet. They exist to prove my authority and my message. If you aren't sold on the message, at least believe me for the sake of the works. That's why the works are there. And then Jesus tells them, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also And greater works than these shall he do. Now in the context, Jesus is speaking about his works. And to this end, there's no reason to interpret this in any other way than with clarity and simplicity. He has done works. His disciples will do do greater works. Now, we can try to to interpret it some other ways. Well, Jesus shared the gospel, and his disciples will will be more effective at sharing the gospel, which they were. And yet we'll see other passages that help us understand that that can't be all of what Jesus was talking about. The second passage that I want to take you to briefly is found in Mark's recounting of Jesus' Great Commission. Mark's recounting of Jesus' Great Commission is somewhat different, quite a bit different, than Matthew's recounting of Jesus' Great Commission following his resurrection and before his ascension. So we read this in Mark 16, whose unique words, by the way, are said by modern translations to not belong in our Bibles. Most of Mark 16 is stripped out of modern translations. In Mark 16, verses 15 through 18, the Bible says this. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So once again, Jesus is pretty clear. This is is very clear, is it not? Those who believe and are baptized shall be saved. Now, this being another controversial statement, which I cannot address in full. But when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we combine teaching with teaching. we We allow the Bible to be the best interpreter of itself. We recognize faith to be an outward expression of an inward persuasion, right? That's what faith is. Faith is the outworking. Faith is when what I believe becomes what I do. That is faith. And then Jesus commands baptism as a manifest sign to others, to other followers of Christ, of a man's willingness to leave all and follow. So Jesus commanded the followers after believing on him to be baptized. Jesus gives this command, and it's a command that is intended to reflect what is already in his heart, the willingness to leave all and to follow Christ. This public profession, thus, is a natural outworking of obedience in the lives of those who are not ashamed of the gospel. So that if a man were unwilling to obey the Lord and be baptized, it would be an evident sign of his unwillingness to associate with his Lord, which reflects a heart of unbelief which is why they're often put together, both in Jesus' teaching and in the book of Acts. Because when you got saved, the next thing that you did was get baptized. But we've covered all that before. We can't get into it too much deeper, but, but that's a bit controversial naturally. But we get back to our point. Jesus says, those who believe will have signs and wonders that follow them. They'll cast out devils. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll take up serpents. They'll drink effectively poison and not be harmed and they will heal the sick. These are instructions, these are promises, and this should hold weight with us. If Jesus made a promise, it should hold weight with us. Then we come to the early church, the Church of Acts. For the sake of brevity, I will not look into any passages specifically, but I don't really need to, right? We see everything that Jesus promised in Mark 16, we see. They speak in tongues, they heal the sick, uh, I, we, don't, we don't see anyone drinking poison, but we do see, we do see Paul get bit by a snake and, and have no harm come to him so that the people on the island there literally tried to make him a god. <laughs> and then, of course, we see the casting out of devils. All of the things Jesus promised they would do, they did. I'm assuming someone drank poison at some point. And then we come to a, the epistles where Paul gives instruction regarding certain gifts of the Spirit in two particular passages, Romans 12 in 1 Corinthians 12, it's nice and easy to remember. Both are 12. In each instance, Paul is stressing the need to operate in the church with love, with communion, recognizing our differences, and not hating, judging, minimizing, or disenfranchising one another. I'm not gonna read the list in Romans chapter 12. It's, it's significantly less controversial. Prophecy, ministry, exhortation, rulership, mercy. The only one there that would be controversial is depending on how we define prophecy, right? But the First Corinthians 12 list is, is quite different. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 4, the Bible says this. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given the Spirit... Uh, By the Spirit, the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and self same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Skipping to verse 28. And God hath set some in the church. First Apostles secondarily, prophets, thirdly, teachers, and after that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversity of tongues. So we see Paul's instruction speaking about various gifts of the Spirit, which includes wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, diverse tongues, or speaking in tongues, and then the interpretation of tongues. And then Paul expresses how God has set these in the church, now we see here a little bit of a different idea. We don't exactly know exactly what this means, uh, whether this be in precedent of value, whether this be uh, by, by number least to greatest, or whether this simply be uh, in order. But we do see that these are elements of the functioning of the church, right? Not just of not just of the functioning of the body, but of the actual function of the church. And so we see apostles and prophets, teachers, and these are the three that are given in Ephesians, right? That God has given to the church: apostles prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. And then uh, miracles, healings, helps, governments, and diversity of tongues. Uh, This list is, as I mentioned, somewhat ambiguous. What we don't know is what this hierarchy, this order that we see specifically here, setting first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, what exactly that means. It would seem to be in levels of dignity. If I I were to give my opinion on what this is, these would be levels of dignity. In other words, the apostle is God's highest ordained um, position. And then after that would come the prophet. Then after that would come the teacher. And then working down through miracles, healings, helps, governments, and diversities of tongues. So that each one in, in order is becoming less um, that, uh, less, less honorable in the sense of God choosing the, the vessels to do with what he sees fit, less honorable in the church. And so we have in this passage these ideas. And, and, and in the church, in this context, we see here miracles, healings, prophecy, tongues. We see these things, right? We can't deny that. We dare not deny that. We dare not ignore it. We dare not pretend it does not exist. We're not going to pick and choose what our Bible says. And we're not going to ignore things that are in our Bible. And yet there's more to the story. Paul continues in the text and he says in the final verse of 1 Corinthians 12 that we're reading here, verse 31, so I'm not skipping much, but covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet I show unto you a more excellent way. So Paul says it's great for the believer to desire these positions of usability and service in the kingdom of God. Desire to be an apostle. Desire to be a prophet. Desire to be a teacher. First Timothy tells us, if a man desire the office of the bishop, he desires a good work, right? This is a good thing. Desire these things. Desire these giftings. Desire these callings. Desire these, the, these opportunities to minister to others. But Paul says... All of that being said, there is still a more excellent way than any of these. There's a greater function in the church than any of these offices or or other functions. And of course, this gives way to 1 Corinthians 13, which is probably a somewhat familiar passage to you. It is the chapter on charity, on love. And so it begins in, in verses 1 and 2. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. See see the following, how it follows right in the context? The context of gifts, and and the last gift that he used as far as that order uh, is, is diversity of tongues. Then he says, though I would speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. It doesn't matter whether I can speak in tongues if I'm not operating in love. It doesn't matter if you're a prophet or an apostle, or a teacher, or a healer, or a, mir- or, or a miracle worker, if you don't have love, if charity does not abound among you, then you are, then, then it doesn't matter. These gifts are, are not going to be functionally useful in the church. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Paul immediately attempts to draw the minds of the believers beyond the gifts Onto a more excellent way. A more excellent, more excellent than any specific gift in the body is the manner that we deport ourselves toward one another in love. After defining love, Paul then says this. I'm skipping the, that portion where, where Paul defines love, but he says this in verse 8 Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now, as we get to this, most, um, I'm not going to impute false motives. Any number of, as as I have grown up hearing the arguments against sign gifts, this this is the big one. Many a pastor will say, see, we know in part, we prophesy in part, we speak in part, but the Bible says these things are going to cease. The prophecies are going to cease. The tongues are going to cease. And and when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will vanish away, and they say, "See, this is that there was this opportunity for for um, there to be prophecy at a time when, when there was darkness and when there was not the Word of God yet, and tongues when there was not the Word of God, but then when the Word of God came, that which is perfect came, then that which is in part needed could go away. once the Word of God was was finalized, and once it was out there then then the the, the, the uh, tongues and the prophecies and these sign gifts could go away. I would encourage you not to make this argument. In my opinion, it's bad interpretation. Here's why. Paul has defined love, stating that love will never fail, right? That's, that's how this starts in verse eight. Charity never faileth. So he's not comparing the Bible to, to prophecy or the Bible to tongues. He's comparing charity to prophecy and charity to tongues. And at first we might say, Paul is telling them to transition their expectations away from sign gifts and toward love because they won't be around much longer. Well, not really, no. Notice verse 10. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. What is this perfection? Most who argue cessation, as I said, will say this is the Bible. And so because we have the Bible, we don't need these signs anymore. And I I agree, now that we have the Bible, we don't need signs anymore, but not for this reason. This is a bad passage. Why? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 11. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. All right, so in these verses, Paul is contrasting now and then, right? And Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. When is the then that Paul is talking about? When is the then... In which I will see face to face? When is the then in which I know even as also I am known? Is that when the Bible is canonized? Is that when I see face to face? Is that when I know even as also I am known? I've never heard that interpretation actually. I've never heard anyone say seeing face-to-face and knowing as I am known is when the Bible is canonized or, or when it's fully written. Uh, th- this, is, this is when we transition out of this life into the next is, is, is what I've always understood it to be what makes the most sense to me interpretively. When I, I, I'm no longer seeing through the haze of this fleshly body of sin and I'm no longer seeing through the haze and, and, and I'm having to deal with misfiring synapses and a bad memory and all of the things that come with humanity, and I will, trans, I, will I will, go into the, the end, right? And, and what Paul seems to be saying here is that uh, the, the, the prophecies, the ability to prophesy and the ability to speak in tongues and these things, they serve for this earth, but they don't carry into the life that is to come, but charity will. Charity doesn't fail. Charity will follow me into the life that is to come. That as we live in love now, we are actually living out an ideal that carries into heaven. Prophecies don't carry into heaven. Tongues don't carry into heaven. But charity carries into heaven. And so I can actually pursue a heavenly value here on earth through the church. Well, if that's true then Paul isn't saying that when the Bible is written, we don't need these gifts anymore. Because that's not the transition that's being spoken of. Prophecies failing and signs ceasing or tongues ceasing is not speaking of when the Bible comes. It's speaking of when we stop seeing through a glass darkly and we start seeing face to face. It's speaking of a time when when I, when I, I stop knowing in part and I know even as also I am known. Right? So if we go back to verses 8 through 10, Paul is contrasting these gifts of the Spirit with the nature of love. These gifts, the ability to prophesy, to speak in tongues, to collect and disperse knowledge. They are things which reflect eternity, but which only are a shadow of eternity. But when perfection comes, when we reach our spiritual maturation on the other side of eternity, love will remain the love that we can live out on this earth that Jesus was able to show us on this side of eternity reflecting perfect love on the cross, we can do that too. And that love won't get any better in heaven. We can can live out the, the reality of that divine love now. Doesn't mean we will, but we can. Everything else is just a shadow. All of, these, all of these gifts, they're, they're a shadow. But love is the essence. These gifts, the gifts that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 12, they were given to facilitate elements of ministry, elements of, uh, of, of and as we'll see, I believe, next week, proof, validation. But love is a direct reflection of the true and living God so that when Jesus walked on the earth, he did not say, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples when ye speak in tongues. By this shall all men know ye are my disciples when ye prophesy. By this shall all men know ye are my disciples when the lame walk and the sick are healed. He said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, John 13, 35, if ye have love one to another. There's a piece of the fullness of heaven and eternity that you can experience every day of your life, Christian. It's not through miracles. It's not through healings. It's not through tongues, through prophecies, through knowledge, through hospitality, through generosity. All of those things are wonderful. They all serve their place one way or another, whether they're still here or whether they're gone. We'll talk about that next week. But love, charity... That's what Paul was doing in 1 Corinthians. He said, you've got these gifts, but can I I show you something better? And of course, then we'll continue next week along this vein, recognizing why I believe it is as we merge the purpose that we've understood in last last week's message and then the beginning of this week with these various passages of Scripture that do establish the presence of sign- and wonder gifts in the body of Christ. How do we reconcile this? Where do we go with this? What do we do with this? And that's what we'll be considering next time. But for the remainder of our week, as we walk throughout this week, may I encourage you, as I stopped where I did, to contemplate what Paul was saying here. And as we consider signs and wonders, and we focus in on this topic of unique interest in the church and and true relevance, that you remember that regardless of where all of this lays out, which hopefully will settle next week, there is a more excellent way. There is something that you and I can be doing now, regardless of what we believe about signs and wonders, that brings us to a higher plane, that allows us to live out of that which consistently will carry into eternity, and that is charity. And may it be so among us that rather than bickering and arguing and contending over those things uh, which we would desire in the church in order to grant us positions of opportunity and honor, we would instead be by love serving one another. For in this shall all men know that we are his disciples. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.